relentless pursuit of short-term goals. My name is Harry Amos, and this is my 5.30. You guys, this episode is going to be so good, you're going to love it. Harry Amos, literally a real-life action hero, is joining us to talk not only about the incredible Pacific Row adventure that he and three others are about to embark on, a feat of covering 4,800 kilometers of ocean in approximately 40 days, raising awareness for charities very close to their hearts, but we will also touch on his time spent in the British Army and how he came to live in Dubai. Harry is brave, ambitious, and incredibly committed in pursuit of achieving his goals, and I hope each of you find some inspiration from this episode. Enjoy. Harry Amos, this is such an honor having you on the podcast. Pleasure um, to be here. I've been super excited about like talking to you. Got lots of questions. To me, until I met you now, you, you were a fictional character mm. as if you were part of like the Marvel comics. The veil has and, now and dropped. And now <laughs> the curtains are up. You're here in flesh. Yeah. Uh, thank you for being here. Real pleasure. Real pleasure. Hopefully I can answer some questions. <laughs> How did it all start for you? I was born in Germany um, uh, under the, the army of the Rhine uh, in a British military hospital, a place called Rintelm. And uh, I have lived in Germany a total of nine years uh, over three different stints growing up. Don't speak a word of German, I'm embarrassed to say. <laughs> uh, also lived in Cyprus um, for three years, lived in West Africa in Ghana, um, the UK. And uh, yeah, so always went to boarding school. Um, and then in the summer holidays, I got to go back to wherever mum and dad were, were posted. And uh, which means that, you know, I am English in the sense that I went to an English uh, boarding school, but was lucky that I got to go home to places like Ghana in the summer holiday, which is very cool. Um, and, you know, people often go, oh, did you join the army because your dad was in the army? Uh, well, obviously that <laughs> I could see that. And so that was an influence. But dad actively did not encourage me to join the army. Like he, he didn't tell me not to join the army. He didn't, but he didn't actively push it or promote it. Um, I already had that obsession anyway. Um, and I'll tell you how bad he was that when I went to Sandhurst, um, <laughs> in 2007, I rang him up, um, about four weeks in and everyone fames the first five weeks at Sandhurst as the really hard bit. And I rang him up and dad was, had left the army long since, and he was in Iraq, uh, running control risk group, um, head of, of country for the, the security operation there. And, um, I, I was like, dad, how's Iraq? And he's like, yeah, yeah, good, good. Business is good. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, so Sandhurst is going really well. And he was like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> You're in the army. Yes, I am in the army. <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good. Right, when am I next seeing you? you know, very <laughs> so it definitely wasn't pushed. Um, uh, just a natural fit. Um, my rebellious streak, unlike most people who, uh, you know, go on a gap year and travel the world or, you know, I don't know, go to, go to festivals and parties or whatever i i went to university went to newcastle very briefly realized that it was a complete waste of time was terrified that <laughs> i was going to miss uh, miss the war because afghanistan was going on um and so joined the royal marines reserve when i was supposed to be learning mechanical engineering um and did that for two years between the age of 18 and just before i was 20 did the commando course at 19 
Um, and that was my rebellious streak because that wasn't me joining my family regiment. <laughs> that was me joining a different part of the military. And I, I even remember my dad being like, don't worry, you'll get over that. <laughs> you know, I've got a green berry and a dagger on my arm. And, like, and, and do you know what? He was bloody right. <laughs> and when I went to Sandhurst, I realized that uh, I did want to join that regiment and be uh, a reconnaissance officer, which is essentially what I was for uh, eight years after that. Not um, your typical gap year. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a very, very different gap year to the one that I had, <laughs> which we won't go into. Yeah, there was a sub-sub gap year actually in between finally leaving university and actually going to Sandhurst. There was about a one-year air gap where I was uh, I was technically in the Royal Marines Reserve, so I was doing stuff like that. But my best friend, this guy called Alex Ledger, who'd, who'd set up a paragliding and paramotoring school, which, uh, you know, uh, without showing you imagery, if you imagine a parachute and... Mm -hmm with a big motor on your back, and this enables you to, to fly. Um, and I was down in Dorset um, with my mum, and I'd only been there for like two weeks, and she's like, God, you're going to drive me crazy down here. Um, you know, I was <laughs> like, but mum, don't, I've just got to, you know, bide my time until I get my entry to, to Sandhurst. And she's like, no, no, you're not hanging around here for that long. <laughs> and she said, look, your old friend, Alex Ledger, is in is in town. He started up a business. When he says old friend, it meant I'd had a bath with him when I was one. <laughs> And, and, and she was just like, here's his number, call him up. And I, and I did. And we went for a pint in the George in Mere uh, in Wiltshire. And, I did, and he's a, he was, he, at the age of 21, he walked around like a sort of 50-year-old. He's a balding, grumpy sort of young man. Anyway, we, had, we hit it off and we had, some, we had several pints. And he went, so yeah, I'm running this paragliding school um, and, uh, you know, looks like you could be the kind of person if you're lucky enough that I could work with. Like I was in a job interview. It was like, mate, I thought we were coming for a pint. Anyway, and we were three pints down. And, and then and then he's just like, right, we're going on the hill now. We're going flying. So we then just literally put the rucksack on and, and walked up the, the the rifle range, which is the, the white sheet downs on Wiltshire Week, which is amazing. It's a 250-foot hills. And he just sort of rigged me up and threw me off. And I did my first ever paragliding flight, you know, three pints down, um, a little bit pissed completely unsure what I was doing and absolutely no fear of the process. And that was enough for him to be like, yes, you got the job. So I went home and my mum, who, <laughs> whose goal had been to get me out of the house on the odd occasion, you know, maybe do some adventures. And I'm like, mum, I'm going to work in Cyprus and I'm going to be a paragliding instructor. And she was like, you're bloody well not. <laughs> Does, is this business insured? Who is this man? It's like, mum, you put me in touch with him. It was your idea. Anyway, and a year later, uh, I'd been, we'd worked in, I'd done six months in, in Spain, working around Madrid and Barcelona. Uh, we did road trips all over Europe to, across uh, on the south coast of France, at Dune de Pilar. And uh, we did all these cool things, flying and, and teaching people how to fly at the back of a, a Land Rover. And then my Sandhurst date was coming up fasting and I was like dad I'm, dad, I'm sorry Alex I, I retire I'm joining the army he's like you're making a terrible mistake you have a great <laughs> career in paragliding <laughs> I still fly today but I just don't, don't work for him um and he's still my best friend <laughs> that's amazing what a sub gap year you have like a gap year and then a sub gap year what yeah. else they paid me he paid me 50 quid a week which I thought was a huge amount of money back then yeah but then i had you know i had a sleeping bag and a car and if ever and he did all the food so i was loaded <laughs> <laughs> yeah how how did you end up in dubai like what what's the backstory behind that uh well it's funny actually because sophie probably had, as was is part of this in the sense that i left the army in april 2015 and 
do classic ex-army officer and went, what the hell am I going to do now? And um, I got into this sort of security circuit and I was working for a company called Salamanca, I worked for Control Risk Group. Um, yeah, it seems like a natural fit. Um, and actually then I, I was in Corfu with my dad um, and John Ferguson. John Ferguson was my dad's, um, is my dad's best mate. And John Ferguson is the, was the racing chairman and racing manager of, of Falcon and, and Godolphin and had been for a few years and, and had a great history in Dubai. And he just said to me at dinner one night, quite drunk, he said, God, you're just so unoriginal, you're just like your dad. <laughs> just like your dad's there, by the way. You're just, <laughs> you're just like your dad. You know, you're just going to go and uh, you're going to join the army and then go to security. How unoriginal. And I was like, well, John, give me, give me something else. And he was like, well, I've got an idea. <laughs> and, then, and then he parachuted me into this company called Falcon and Associates, which was a, uh, which I don't know if you've heard about, but they, they had been sort of founded post uh, economic crash in sort of 2009 and they were in charge of the strategic positioning and, and stratcoms for Dubai and one of the first things they did was to win the Expo 2020 bid which was then subsequently handed over to Expo 2020 so I was sort of, I was parachuted into that organization uh, and then I went away and did another military thing um, which was my third and final failed attempt at SAS selection um, and then when, when I finally finished my army time in March uh 2016 i then went back to work at godolphin well it was falcon which is running the marketing account for godolphin mm -hmm. in london which is where i met sophie um and then i did that for god i did that for like eight months that was the it was a that was a first on so many fronts but you know i'd first of all I didn't know anything about marketing or horse racing um and i'd never worked with a woman in my life which is really? quite which is quite a weird thing it's a weird thing to say in this day and age <laughs> because because yeah. because you know in the army then it was a. It was uh, if you were in a, a teeth arm, which is mm -hmm. you know, armored recce um, infantry, uh, you, you only work with men, and so the only women you come across are medics. And and I never had female medics. So anyway, so it was it was a weird thing. And I was in an office, I think, with like twelve women. I was like, God, how do you how how do you work with women? <laughs> um, that sounds so weird to say now because I had no idea when we worked together at the time. That yeah, that, that I'd never, I'd never time. interacted. The only time I'd seen women before that was basically going, going out for a drink. That was as <laughs> much as it got, you know, uh, and then through that got to know Dubai a little bit more. Um, and then when it came, and then John Ferguson said, actually, this is a much better fit for you. I'm starting up a new company. You should meet this guy called Tom Hudson, who's the managing director of Kestrel. And I was sort of parachuted out of Falcon into, into Kestrel, which is, in Dubai. Um, I was, wasn't married then, but I was engaged. And so I came out to work for Kestrel. And then uh, six months later, my wife followed me. And that was seven years ago. So that's how, how we got to Dubai. It's a funny story. How, you know, it's funny how things turn out. The woman at your, your commanding soldiers and operations, the next minute you're doing, you're helping tech companies with their expansion to the region, which is what I do now. Um, and for the first three years, I did, again, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And now I think I have a little bit of a clue about what I'm doing. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh. I suppose everyone has a funny entry to Dubai story, though. I don't think anyone just sort of, I don't know how, how, how much people plan this kind of stuff. We but. always talk about, like for <laughs> me, like I always tell people I was here for, for, for weeks of holiday and I'm just like, I want to work here. Yeah. Like yeah. Whatever, whatever job position that I can take just to be in this place. Yeah, I'd take it. Exactly. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fast forward 13 years, I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The rest is history, literally. It's so yeah. true. Everyone's journey here is so different. Like for me, I had been here in the early 90s with my family. My yes, family exactly. all have a horse racing background as well. And then 
I myself was working for Godolphin and originally was doing half the year in England and then mm. out here for the winter as per the horse racing season and when the yeah. horses were shipping back and forth. And then again, transitioned full time when I moved into Falcon and Associates as mm. well. So mm. yeah, haven't looked back. Yeah, it's funny how things work out. Yeah. And then people never leave. I know. <laughs> I think you'll go, well, I actually, I've said this before, I think on the podcast as well. Like I've, I'm not one of those people that Mm. ever was like oh, I'm going for two years or one year it was just like mm. I'm just going there yeah I was never a kind of moment where I thought I'd even consider moving back I mean yeah. I don't necessarily think I'll be here forever but yeah yeah there's definitely no and if you leave you'll just come straight back anyway exactly classic boomerang <laughs> yeah exactly. I love the boomerangs we're leaving we've we've been here for 15 years we're never coming back like one year later <laughs> yeah, it's like okay we're not left. really leaving you know obviously <laughs> yeah, <laughs> i can't exactly. afford the tax and all the all yeah. the bad weather it's yeah, really exactly. tough like, like the safety the convenience yeah. everything like yeah. dealing with like multinational people yeah with it's friends a bit too easy it's and also that, crazy and fun yeah, yeah. and yeah. It's, it's also crazy to think that you would have like a friend if you go to australia you have a friend if you go to america mm. a friend if you go to asia mm. it's just like insane you meet yeah. people from all walks of life and, it's uh, so true. It's so true. It's really one of the the you know people often talk about where we come from. We talk about how amazingly multicultural we are, and we have these beautiful you know sort of idyllic societies. Apparently, but actually, you don't. And the irony is, you have to come to a sort of an area where there isn't a democracy to find actual <laughs> multiculturalism and and, the, and and people who and, and interaction between those cultures. Because, and I think in the UK and America. They, yes, they have lots of different cultures and, 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 and races, if you like, but they, they often cluster with each other. Whereas in Dubai, there's, there's, that sort of, there's that mix, which is nice. Okay, so everything we've gone through so far, you're mm. very clearly an adventurer, a bit of a daredevil. <laughs> You've got to just tell us exactly what you have on the horizon because it's, it's just so incredible. Yeah, so always, always good to have a project. And when my brother approached me, uh, two years ago about this one, I was very hesitant to get into it because I just had this sense that it was going to be so big and, and life-consuming that this couldn't be gone into lightly, unlike previous ones, which are just like, you know, click of the finger and I'm going to go and climb that mountain. And my brother uh, <laughs> said, Harry, I want to row the Atlantic with you, um, which is, by the way, not the ocean we're rowing. But um, And I was like, Ollie, you, do you know how big a deal this is going to be? I mean, forget the actual row itself. It's going to cost a huge amount of money. You're going to have to just get sponsors and, you know, the time is vast. Anyway, he finally got me across the line because uh, of COVID. And so we put our hat in the ring to row the Atlantic. And then the Atlantic campaigns who run, run the Talisker Whiskey race got back to me and said, great, well, we'd love to have you involved, but you weren't, you're not going to row an ocean with us until 2025. Cause, Why? Because in COVID, you know, every man, Jack, and his dog had gone, mm -hmm. I'm going to go and do an adventure. <laughs> um, and, you know, Talisker Whiskey had become quite cool, I think. And and so everyone, all these teams that applied to join. So we were that, we said, look, can you put us on a reserve list? And they put us on a reserve list uh, to do an earlier race. And then they got in touch with us in early 21 and said, look, you're not going to, even the reserve list on the Atlantic, you're not going to do it, but we're going to start this new race in uh, the Pacific. Um, do you want to do that instead? And you'll be top of that list and we're running that in 2023. And we were just like, yeah, do it. And it worked in so many levels, better than the Atlantic because the Atlantic is a winter race, happens in December, um, which as you guys know, 
December in, in, in the Middle East is fighting yeah. season. This is when all the work is done, mm -hmm. all the business is done. Um, whereas the Pacific race, as it turns out, is a summer race because that's where the, the weather conditions are best for it. Um, and I try and travel, do all my travel with the family in the summer anyway. So I'm not going to do it with my family, <laughs> <laughs> but I am going to go and row the Pacific instead. So it was a much better alignment um, to, to Middle East living. Um, so yeah, that's it. We're row I'm rowing the Pacific with my brother and two others. Um, we leave from California, a place called Monterey Bay, uh, which is apparently a real, really posh area of California. Um, and which is nice. I think Prince Harry lives 45 minutes away. Um, and he's, that's convenient because he's the patron of, uh, Invictus, Invictus which is one. Yeah. So he's going to come and hopefully say goodbye to us. And then we're going to row 4,800 kilometers west to the Hawaiian. Is it in Kauai? Yes, so we, 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 it's the Hawaiian nation, yeah. uh, but we are finishing in Kauai, which is like the last big like, island. Like northwestern, upper northwest. Exactly, yeah. Of, uh, there Hawaii. are something like 18,000 islands or something in, in, the, in, that re, in that area, but Kauai is the fourth biggest, and it's the last island. It's known as the Garden Island, and, it's, and it's where Jurassic Park was filmed. I love how you yeah. casually just talk about rowing <laughs> the Pacific. Yeah. It's one of the most like treacherous and... Uh, the deepest <laughs> mm. oceans on earth. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you guys like feel about the whole thing? Uh, it sounds really flippant. And, and ask me this question in three months time and I'll give you a slightly different answer, but I'm not worried about rowing it. Um, that's the least of it at the moment. Uh, getting to the start line, as I sort of knew it would be, is definitely the biggest challenge. Um, yeah, I mentioned the cost, the sponsorship, the logistics, mm -hmm. the team dynamic. How, yeah, so your brother convinced you to join. So yeah. then who, how did you convince the two others? Well, the other two, the, it's funny because then Ollie and I are, were the core of the crew and we had plans on who would do it with us. In the end, you're just, you're just ringing up people who you like and you think who would want to do it with you. And hopefully your best friends will give you honest answers and quick answers because people can really deliberate over this stuff and you just need to build a team. Um, so basically it's the first people that say yes. <laughs> and a lot of people say no. Um, and that really is the first like criteria is, are you willing to do it? Uh, and, uh, and then we, also presumably you're all at very different fitness levels at the very different, beginning. So different people, different characters. Yeah. Like there are these guys, Paris and Barney were at school with my brother growing up. They're both brilliant characters. Like Paris is just already an adventurer, highly optimistic about everything um, really wants to build his profile as an adventurer. This is his bread and butter, but this will be the biggest thing he's done. Barney Lewis, the other guy, you know, slightly more uh, sort of UK centric, but just a comedian, like cheerful in in every circumstance, even when things are down. Exactly the kind of guy you need uh, to crack a joke when when things are going really badly. It's that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and then my brother, you know, who who's a bit of all of those things actually. Um, and yeah, so I'm sort of the old, serious, boring one. And then, yeah, there you've got my brother, who's the sort of linchpin, who's, you know, a bit of, you know uh, aspirational to do these kind of things. And then you've got the other two. So we're filming a, a Amazon Prime documentary. I hope I'm not going to get much FaceTime and I'm just going to be the old, quiet, <laughs> cantankerous bloke at the back of the boat, just rowing. Well, seeing you now, uh, you're talking about <laughs> you being the most boring. So I can imagine the energy of the other guys. Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. They all have, between the four of us, this is a high energy grouping. Yeah. Normally you have a, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. We all get on really well. My brother and I is the biggest risk. 
because <laughs> we we go like we go at each other big time How? and it's deep and personal and it like it, it just goes down to the you know, when that when it goes it's just like you've always been like this we're <laughs> just gonna go overboard and just like start yeah. wrestling with yeah. sharks and <laughs> one of the conversations we've had is is like because if someone dies on the road people do die and it, knock on wood right now yeah. oh my well God. no i mean people die of uh, weirdly of natural causes <laughs> you know it's very unlikely you would just you know fall over and die you know it's people die so this is the whole procedure about what happens if someone dies on the boat and you're supposed there's a whole written thing about like you have to keep them for a certain number of days but if they get to a certain point then yes you have to throw them over the board and all this kind of stuff and i was just thinking <laughs> like this could be the perfect cover for murdering my brother <laughs> like no one would ever know all i've got to do and all i've got to do is just like make sure the other two keep quiet <laughs> We, we just guys we misplaced him yeah he just he just died and yeah and there's no there's no one there's no it's only you know the three of your words so um yeah how, how did your family take this decision yeah yeah good one so there's only really one stakeholder and it's it's absolutely my wife um and you'd better ask her the question but i think the the answer there is that she sort of knew what she was getting herself in for. I was in the army when I met her, mm -hmm. <clears throat> albeit my Afghan days were over. Um, so, so she knew it was there in the background. And then in the early days, I did a lot of climbing. So I was often off, you know, climbing with Alex Ledger and people like that and in the Alps. So, so she knew it was there. So hopefully it wasn't too much of a surprise. Although the X factor there is that since meeting me, getting married and going on this adventure, I've also had two children. <laughs> which changes the equation somewhat and, and certainly does in my head as well um, at, a, at a deep personal worry level because unlike before where really it didn't really matter if mm. something happened to me, really. I mean, like, okay, yeah, my, my girlfriend wife is upset. Mm -hmm. My parents are upset. My brother's upset. Okay, yeah, fine. They'll, they'll survive. When you have children and you're responsible for essentially their, their well-being, their happiness, their development, you know, being fed and watered, providing income like you are. I'm now, I'm now, a, 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 you know, <clears throat> an account, accountable and vital asset within our unit. And if that goes, then that's the most selfish thing I could ever do. It's fundamentally selfish. How old are your kids? Four and two. Do they understand the concept not that dad's going to go? Not a clue. Daddy's rowing. It's just, boat it's just daddy's, <laughs> daddy's rowing. Daddy's rowing boat. They have no idea about anything. <laughs> But uh, that's a big consideration. And I, I, when I was in the army and, and deploying on operations to really dangerous places, and you mm -hmm. get a bit concerned when, when you've got people being shot and blown up around you, and you, you know. But I never remember being that afraid, uh, uh, and certainly not afraid for, for the people around me. Uh, but then my bosses and my soldiers, some of them had kids. Hats off to those guys who were deploying on operations uh, in very dangerous operations and never mentioned it once. Do you think it's leveled up yeah. the way that you've prepared for this? And like, how, how do you, uh, how, how can you prepare for, yeah. for it? Um, I think, I think age, not necessarily that means that I'm more diligent about things anyway. Um, uh, and maybe that's part of why, yeah, the, the stakes are higher and therefore you have to prepare harder. Um, and, yeah. So uh, how do you prepare for it? So there are, there are multi levels. There's the sort of logistics side of it, getting the equipment. There's the finance side of it, 
takes a huge amount of work. On the sort of physical and mental end of it, the physical side is physical preparation, which is strength, fitness, mm-hmm. endurance. Um, but even that's only about 30% of the equation. Then there's the mental preparation. And the mental preparation sort of comes with the the organization and the physical stuff because your your head is in the game and your head uh, is, is sort of um, prepared because you're physically preparing yourself and because you're doing your living and breathing the administration mm-hmm. for for this expedition um uh if you were going to ask me a sort of deep psychological question like how am i mentally preparing it apart from just thinking about it the first thing when i wake up in the morning and the last thing before i go to bed at night that's all i'm going to tell you um uh and yeah i mean we've got to think about contingencies Everything has a backup. All the kit has back backups, backup systems. Making sure we know those systems. Every scenario has a has a you know capsize, hurricane, um, uh, someone gets hurt or injured on the boat. All these things have to be conceptually thought through uh, and then discussed as a team, so that we're all in agreement in advance of what to do in those circumstances. Um, and but I've never rowed an ocean, so I have no idea what all those scenarios are. So I've listed out you know twenty of them, which are plausible and we mm-hmm. need to be prepared for but there's still a bunch that you just have to rely on the, the, a good team dynamic good high skills and competence which means that you know you've got the base level to deal with anything um and that's definitely a good sort of thing for life as well as i'm very lucky i haven't done all these sports all these sports are very different you know, everything from you know ski racing to to mountaineering to climbing um kayaking and all these kind of things what they what it does is it teaches you a great base level of skills that when you learn a new skill or when you're faced with a new scenario you already have this sort of like background muscle memory and and experience which means you can take on new challenges better um and without even having thought about said circumstance um so yeah that that backdrop is useful I I have a question about sustenance. Uh, How are you going to pack your food? Is it going to be like a dehydrated ration or? Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not nice. It's basically like eating pot noodles for, for. um, It's like back in the army. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, no, the army food is great. Yeah, you have, you have, we have wet rations, pre-cooked meals in a, in a long life packaging and you just put it in a, you, you, you literally put it in boiling water. It heats up the packet and you eat and it's sort of like, you know, uh, it's steak and kidney you know, and sausage <laughs> and beans and all this sort of stuff, which is delicious. Um, that we are, that's heavy. Um, <clears throat> and the boat's got to be light because we're racing and also mm-hmm. we just don't want to be carrying extra weight. So the, we eat freeze dried rations. So it's basically rashed food, which said all the water sucked out of it. And so uh, you have the same menus, but it just looks like powder and pasta. And then you add, add the boiling water and it hydrates the food. And then you eat that um, very highly calorific uh, it's not going to win any awards for taste, but um, it's very practical. What's going to be like the, I assume there's just like millions of calories involved in here. Yeah, lots. What? So we're burning, depending on your body size, you're burning between seven and eight, 9,000 calories a day because oh. you're working on, you're working on six, two hour shifts. So that's 12 hours of rowing per day. Each two hour shift, uh, thanks to Apple watches, I know that <laughs> I burn uh, about a thousand calories on a two hour shift. Depending on how hard I'm pulling yours. That's a lie. Yeah. So you do that six times a day. Plus, then you've got your normal background energy burn. So you can see why you can burn 8,000 a day. So you've got to eat. So you eat, basically, you have four meals a day, but you eat six times a day. So four meals when you come off shift. 
and then you eat your sort of snack packs. Uh, and the great thing about doing something like this is that you're allowed to eat. There's nothing you can't eat. If I, if, you know, if, if I can eat 10 chocolate bars a day and not feel guilty about it, and I'm still going to be in deficit. So, um, you know, your body actually struggles to process a certain point number of calories anyway. I don't know what that number is, but I basically have to eat the max that my body can process in a day and I'll still lose some weight as well. Now, even ahead of time going into it, are you, are you doing that? You're bulking? Uh, no, I'm not bulking. Uh, I'm eating a lot, yeah. uh, as much as I can. Not as much as Paris on the crew, who's a fucking monster. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I'm... But I always, but actually, that's not new. I've always eaten when I've eat, wanted to eat. I've not, I've never been, a, never looked at my diet from a calorie counting perspective. That is, because um, always been training, always been high, sort of training for something or going to the gym or running or what have you. So I've always eaten as much as I like anyway. Um, so it's just like double downing on that idea. <laughs> How's the sleeping pattern? I, it's a small boat for four people, mm. for tall people like you guys. Yeah. How's the sleeping pattern in there in that tiny cabin? And yeah. I know that it's going to be hot and humid yeah. for some parts yeah. because it's closer to the equator and all that stuff. Yeah, it's hot and humid. Uh, exactly. And uh, there's no air conditioning in the cabins and they are small. But um, you get used to it. Uh, again, using the army as a backdrop, um, uh, you get used to sleeping in weird and wonderful places in, in slightly contorted positions and what have you. And I, so I sort of thought coming into this, oh, I'm going to sleep easily. Um, but actually being at sea is a different type of sleep. It's weird. There's a, there's the motion of it and there's, and also the fact that you're coming off the oars as well. So it's not like you're, there's, and there's also the novelty of sleeping in a boat, which I've thankfully got over. And during my training, I've managed to practice just coming off the oars at two o'clock in the morning, just lying down and going to sleep as quickly as possible. Cause you've only got, you've got two hours off at any given moment before you sleep, you have to make sure you've eaten. That's a five, five to ten minute process. You've got to make sure the salt water's out of your, uh, your, your, your armpits and all the places where you get salt rubbing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in your groin and stuff like that. So you have to clean yourself with a wet wipe. Um, you then have to deal with any sores you've got. Bear in mind your hands uh, and your bottom is ripped apart during this process. So you have to do all your wounds. So that's a sort of 15, 20, 30 minute process. Um, and, then, and then you've got to lie down and then you've got an hour and 20 minutes of, of actual sleep then because then you've got to wake up 10 minutes before your shift. So then you've just got to make sure you're really good at sleeping in the hour and 20, which uh, when you are five, six days in, so crossing the Pacific uh, and you're in massive deficits and your sleep at five gets easier and easier. And eventually your body just completely switches into that way of being. So it's harder at first and then it just gets easier and easier, as I understand, as because I've never rode an ocean. So, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> and what about the other team members? Are you are they ready for this whole thing? I'm pretty sure they are, but yeah. is there like a contingency plan where because you're going to be in like wet and damp? Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely no there's definitely no contingency plan. We are on our own. Um, it's completely unsupported. Uh, we carry all our own food. We make our own water using a, a water maker. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no backup. If someone can't row for whatever reason, mentally decided not to or injured. He's just a dead weight and you and you have to keep going because there's you can't row backwards. <laughs> yeah. So so the reason why uh, the reason why these nations or these islands, sorry, were discovered when they were discovered is because the prevailing winds and currents take ships essentially in these directions. So mm -hmm. if you look at sort of the Polynesian uh, region, they were all discovered, and I'm using inverted covers here, from from west to east by the sort of uh, Chinese, Taiwan, uh, Thailand 
uh, sort of original, we're talking a thousand years ago, the, the trade winds took them, took them east to discover what is now the Polynesian Triangle, which is the, you know, uh, Hawaiian Islands, Easter Island and New Zealand, which is where the sort of Maori tribes and, and that, that sort yeah. of... Anyway, so that, there's a reason why they were discovered that way. It's because all the, the currents took them that way. The same applies to us, but we're, we're riding the currents west to Hawaii. <laughs> so when, if something goes wrong, you can't be like, okay, sh- crap, we've got to go back. You know, you're, you're riding essentially a, a one-knot yeah. current that's going taking you to where you need to go. Um, and so, yeah, uh, you've got to make sure you've got a good team. Do you it's have- going to gonna be tough and stick together. Do you have like a projected uh, distance uh, for every day, and and how long are you guys planning to? Uh... It's really it's really varied. If the weather is favorable, if you've got a, a nice little tailwind, the wave direction is interesting. I didn't know anything about how important wave direction was. So you've got currents, wave directions, wind directions. They don't all necessarily do the same thing. Um, ideally, they do, and sometimes they do. So you you want to ride the current west. You want waves coming just behind you. Uh, you know, you're looking for that sort of whatever, 10 meter, uh, 10 foot swell behind you, pushing in the right direction with the wind. And you can get some serious speed. So you can go, you could be cruising four, four, five knots nonstop for days. And that'll mean you'll do 150 kilometers a day. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you're going into a, a headwind uh, and the wave direction's hitting you side on. The current's still taking in the right direction, but you're then going backwards uh, three or four knots. And so you're still rowing because you don't want to lose the distance. So you're, you're rowing to hold your position, which is a mind numbingly depressing act. And, and having only sort of experienced it here in Dubai, when you're just rowing into a headwind and the Burj Al Arab hasn't moved for the whole day, <laughs> you get a sense, but it, that's, the, and you get a sense of God, how frustrating that is. Um, so yeah, that's the range and then everything in between really. With all the equipment, are you being tracked by the uh, race organizers? We are being tracked by every man, Jack, and his dog. So we've got... Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, so... so And th- yeah, that is amazing because, again, using the Polynesians as a reference point, mm-hmm. you know, wooden, wooden, wooden boats uh, with food supplies and water supplies that they were carrying themselves on the, on the, on the wind, navigating by stars. Uh, and we have solar panels... We've got obviously batteries, the, 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 which are powering all of our systems, our communications, our navigation, our water maker, um, all these critical systems. I can charge my phone if I need to. I can't use my phone, but then we have a satellite BGAN system, which enables us to sort of loop into a satellite mm-hmm. via a router, which means that I can trickle feed WhatsApps in and WhatsApps out every couple of days. Um, it's not instant messaging, but I can still get stuff out. And then on the boat, we have... Uh, What's called an EPIRB, which is an emergency beacon, which gets triggered if something goes wrong. We have a, a life raft, which has also got an EPIRB, so that if the boat capsizes and doesn't right, and we have to jump ship from one to our, our life raft, all these beacons are suddenly lit up. And then we have personal locating beacons, which are on our harnesses. Uh, so if everything goes wrong, you'll see two EPIRBs. One of your boat, which is you know half, will be half floating, or if not completely sunk, you'll have one from your life raft, and then you should have four flashing beacons. And if you haven't got four flashing beacon, personal beacons, that's an indicator to the, the race organizers who are overwatching you that someone has died. Um, but of course, the technology goes wrong. And so there's so many stories about people who set off the EPIRBs, that was a great success. And then only two of the four personal locating beacons worked. And so the race organizers assumed that two guys drowned. Um, and, then, and then what happens is, with, with or without the race organizers, maritime code takes over which is this amazing thing which i didn't really understand 
Um, and it surpasses all international rivalries and laws and insurance companies. And that is that if something goes wrong at sea, the nearest ship, and this is a you know, thousand-year-old code, the nearest ship comes and gets you. That's just the rules. And that could be a that could be a Russian warship, or it could be a cargo ship, or it could be a cruise liner, or whatever. Just and insurance companies hate it because you know these cargo ships are carrying millions of tons of you know, whatever. Yeah. But the cargo ships no, someone's someone's the PLB's <laughs> gone off, so we're going off course, which costs these companies you know thousands. So it's this amazing thing, which means that. Uh, within reason, you can expect a ship to be with you within three or four days. Um, there's no helicopter cover. You're way too far from from that. Um, so yeah, all this technology, all these all these tracking systems, and then from a personal perspective, there's this app called Yellow Brick. So there's another tracker on our boat. Uh-huh. So you can, whilst we're rowing across, you can see you can be a dot watcher, and you can watch us very slowly go across the the Pacific. Um, so yeah, there are all sorts of. That's cool. Are, are you guys filming it as well? Are you yeah, we're filming it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a filmmaker and a, and a and a producer on the crew, so we've got something like fifteen GoPros, one running twenty four seven on a on a loop system, which is deleting its content every thirty minutes, um, and then something happens, and then someone's got to be bright enough to remember to press the button to capture <laughs> the whale that just like splashed us, or the fact that we capsized, <laughs> or what have you. Um, so yeah, we're filming it, and uh, so hopefully there'll be uh, something good on Amazon Prime for you to watch after. Um, we're hoping something goes wrong because otherwise it's gonna be really boring. <laughs> Producers <laughs> love that. Yeah, I'm like, pretty sure yeah, Paris would love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, uh, if there's no risk, we're gonna have to no orchestrate sh- it. If so, yeah. <laughs> also, it, it, murdering my brother's out. There's a like, shark. Like, it's, it's all being filmed. So. <laughs> yeah, you might see some sharks. Yeah, sharks. So, yeah, I mean sharks. It's boat uh, ocean rowing boats are. Are unique. I, well, I suppose sailing boats are similar, but ocean rowing boats—you have got this rhythm of the paddles in the water, and it's very. So we are. So animals are attracted to rowing boats um, because we don't look as threatening as a giant cruise line or any boat with an engine. So uh, yeah, just the the wildlife flocks. The whales come and say hi. Literally say hi to you. There's no reason for them to come up except to say hello to you. The dolphins are the same. Sharks will follow uh, follow you at the hope of that you throw something overboard. Uh, not my brother, <laughs> like some food or what have you, uh, just inquisitive. Um, so yeah, there's loads of wildlife and, and that which is quite cool. And apparently I was, li- apparently dolphins are, they, li- there's a certain rhythm that they, they like and are attracted to and, and the, and the, the movement of the oars coming in the water is one of those. And we saw some huge I've pot of dolphins. S- I've here. seen yeah. on some of your training videos out here. It yeah. just looks so stunning. I was amazed. It's weird. And they, and they pop up and they are coming to see you as well. They're not just there where you are. They've gone. Oh, let's go and look at that. And they and they're they're surrounding the boat. And it's fantastic. The yeah. maintenance part for the boat. Do you have to go down and start scrubbing? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The boat, like so, you got your your you got you get weirdly you get barnacles just just grow at the bottom of the boat. You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, yeah. eleven kilometers deep, and there are barnacles growing on your boat. But there's all sorts of wildlife on the surface of mm-hmm. oceans, and they literally you've got these sort of seaweed patches and what have you. And all these animals, when it just scrapes against your boats, you know, things it suck on, the, right? Yeah. And and you lose about between half a knot and one knot with with the resistance on the hull. So every four or five days, you have to clean the hull, which involves two of you, uh, one person jumping in the water with goggles, looking out for sharks. So you're just the old Mr. Shark Watch. And then, uh, and then the other guy jumps in and you have to do this quickly, not because you're afraid of the sharks, but because you're racing. And you're not going anywhere when this is happening. So you get on and you have a scrubber and you just scrub the bottom of the deck and then you, uh, hopefully no sharks turn up and you both get on and you get back on the oars again. So it's, it's part of the procedure. <laughs> um, 
And then, you know, a big, a big part of this is, I said 30% was physical, right? It's about your physical training. But actually, uh, it's about expedition mentality. And expedition mentality is about looking after yourself and administering yourself. Because it, if, you're, if you go down and you become that dead weight, or if you're or at a low version of yourself, you're not, not able to help everyone else on the cruise. So administration, personal administration from having the, the sort of uh, the, dry, the, the, the motivation to feed yourself when you've come off shift at three o'clock in the morning in a, in a, in a storm and you're not hungry because most people aren't that hungry at two o'clock in the morning, even if they have been doing it. And it's pitch black. And it's pitch black. And you, but if you don't feed yourself in that moment, you don't feel down in the next two or three hours. You feel the down four or five hours later. So it's a very selfish thing not to feed yourself. And then, of course, you've got to look after your wounds as well, make sure they're good. You've got to clean your body so you don't get more wounds from, mm-hmm. the, from the salt rubs. So a lot of this is about administration. And then you've got the boat administration, making sure it's clean, uh, hygienic. You know, you don't want to get infections. If you get infections, you go down. So if you don't administrate yourself and the boat properly, um, uh, you'll fail, essentially. And that's 60%. So 30% is physical. The rest is, is making sure you look after yourself. I think uh, uh, I'm um, I'm representing uh, a lot of uh, masses in here. How are you going to use the toilet? Yeah, good one. <laughs> so uh, I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. It's very question. simple. It's very simple. It involves a bucket. Uh, we have <laughs> Paris was like, I've got guys. This is amazing, and he like produces this handheld B day thing. He's like, this is just game changer. This is gonna mean we can carry so much less wet wipes. <laughs> And I've, you know, I was like, well, to be fair, we are a Middle Eastern boat, so that you know, we're in the Middle East. Obviously, people people use the whatever it is the the the. the is it like the portable shatter? Yeah, yeah, the, the bu- whatever the whatever my dad yeah. calls it, the bum the bum washer, the or bum whatever. spray, <laughs> the bum spray. So yeah, bum uh, shower. Exactly the yeah. bum shower. So yeah, you I and also I invested in a in a really nice uh, loose seat with a stand. So and it sits just perfectly in the middle of the boat. You put the bucket underneath, and you have your morning session i love how like <laughs> this is just so dubai yeah no exactly the comfort then, has to be there yeah, you know and then we do it and then and then you just throw it over the side because it's biodegradable and then the great thing is and a lot of you get lighter the boat gets lighter so you're carrying almost half a ton in supplies you know your food and all that kind of stuff so you literally eat yourself lighter or you shit yourself lighter. <laughs> uh, so you, that, and that's, and you do, and by the end of it, your boat's, the start of the race, your boat, the water line is like that. And by the end of it, it's sort of, you know, sort of positively skipping on the surface by comparison. So, um, yeah. Are you, is, is everybody just like conditioned to battle through um, a 10 meter Hawaiian wave? Yeah, no, definitely not. It's one of those things you can't train for. There's, you know, Dubai is fantastic for getting, out on the water you know we've been training three times a week on the water but uh in terms of simulating uh the the swells the bad weather there's there's you know there's no way of doing it except by doing it and so we take seasickness tablets um and to make sure because that because that can be dehabilitating mm-hmm. um and yeah you just get used to it everyone i've spoken to and i've spoken to more ocean rowers and you can throw a stick at um and everyone's just like, yeah, everyone feels seasick for the first three or four days. Just get on with it. Just get on with it. And then the seasickness dies and then you just crack on and then it becomes the new normal. And that's actually a good thing is that, is that you, you want to get you want to get it to the new normal as quickly as possible, because as soon as you're in the new normal. And how many days, you know, how many days will you, are you hoping to achieve this? In? Uh, so all going well, 40 days, 40 days. Uh, and the go, distance that you'll cover is? 4,800. Okay. 
You can, wow. do the, you can do the maths on what you want to achieve per day. And how yeah. many cycles of... Um, oh, good question. So I worked day, this out. Like so it's least. like, so you're doing six, six... So I worked it out. It's actually you're only doing 250 shifts. 250 yeah, but shifts? Yeah, really? but if you think of it like that, <laughs> so that's, that's a normal yeah, number, yeah, right? Yeah, as yeah. opposed to... Uh, as um, opposed to 1.8 million ore strokes, that's not a nice number because that's the number. But, but Divi <laughs> divided by 40, divided by four per person, that's a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, you're just, so <laughs> if you're just counting down 250 shifts, actually, it's a very doable. Yeah. Just you 250 shifts, two hours each, give or take. Sometimes, it's, by the way, it's not always two hours on, two hours off. Sometimes you're doing three hours on um, and, and longer. So, how many participants are going to be uh, joining you guys? So, it's a four man crew. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, that's the, yeah, it's that, that's the sort of, that's the main race category actually is the four man cruise. And within the yeah. race, are there like a maximum boat for every, uh, it's a competition, right? It, it is. I, I say race, it is a race and there is a prize at the end of the race, but it's more of a coordinated crossing. If you see what I mean, like, mm -hmm. uh, it's start, you know, bear in mind in 2000, in the year 2000, we were talking tens of people had ever even rode an ocean. And then, uh, and then in sort of 2010 to 14, there was a sort of, you know, like a sort of a, um, a renaissance of, of rowing, and mm -hmm. people sort of became quite popular. And and then it's sort of grown since then. So if like 450 people have, have actually rowed across the Atlantic, which is which is not a, a which is, means that the Pacific is so much more attractive because only 80 people have ever rowed it. Um, so it's a much lesser thing, but. Um, yeah, so it's a coordinated crossing, uh, which ha it's, is a race, and it just means that you've got one point of communication. So if something mm -hmm. does go wrong, you've got like an operations room which you can ring up, and they will coordinate with uh, ships at sea that might come and get you. Um, but to be honest, you know, you could still do the same thing without that because uh, you've still got the same lines of communication, yeah. the same C radio, the same satcoms and, and satellite phones. and being, So like you, it doesn't really matter. There is a, there is a little bit of a, a reassurance that comes with it, but they're not coming to get you. There's, they're, they're not, they're not gonna, there's no sort of like helicopter that comes in and goes, don't worry, well done, good effort. Because it's in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, because you're, <laughs> you're a thousand miles from them. <laughs> there's that, I like this. There, there, there's a place <laughs> in the Pacific, uh, in the center of the Pacific, called Point Nemo. And Point Nemo is the most is the most remote place on on the planet, uh, furthest from land in all directions. So you, everyone sees the Earth from from the the normal view, the uh, whatever the Mercato print nineteen oh nine version, which is basically Europe, Africa, Asia, and US mm -hmm. and Australia. That's like, but if you turn that map one hundred and eighty degrees round, it's just blue. There's just one big blue. The Earth is not is not spread out. <laughs> and in the middle of that blue is this Point Nemo. And if you're in the maritime community, everyone knows what Point Nemo is because you live at sea. Yeah. Anyway, but Point Nemo is uh, at, at Point Nemo, in fact, not even at Point Nemo, most places in the Pacific, the International Space Station is about 400 and I think 450 kilometers above you. You know, the nearest land at Point Nemo is 2,000, 2,500 kilometers away. So you're closer to the astronauts on the ISS than you are even the nearest shipping lane, let alone land. Um, and obviously the astronauts aren't coming to get you. They've got their own problems. <laughs> they're just going to watch <laughs> they're, de from they're dealing with their own shit. But like, <laughs> but uh, that gives you a sense of the of the remoteness. Um, so there's no going back. You know, you once you're off, you're off, and you have to keep going and get to the end. And who's supporting you on this uh, adventure? Like sponsors and uh... yeah, sponsors are a massive part of it. And and uh, I'm. 
I'll happily plug them all, but like it's to find a bunch of people and companies to buy, not only buy into the, the narrative, the, the story, the charities, the sort of the, the nature of the endeavor, the size of the endeavor, but basically you're looking for people who believe you, like mm -hmm. people who have faith in you. And uh, that's harder than you think because, you know, you just go, you go up to company X, they don't know you from Adam. They're like, well, you know, you say you can row an ocean. What, what evidence have you got to do that? So you have to find people who go, yeah, I think Harry can do that and he's not going to embarrass us. He's going to represent us. Um, he's aligned with our mission and values. Um, and so it's very heartwarming and, and very humbling, actually. And, and you know, Legatum, which is a fund in, in DIFC, and a chap called Alan McCormick, you know, when I sent him an email, I, I was just like, this, nothing's going to come back from this, you know, but I'm going to try anyway. And the fact that he responded straight away and we, we, we started having this conversation. And the conclusion to that is that there was just a bloke working at a fund in DIFC who had said, yeah, I think Harry could do this. And I think, yeah, that, and so uh, gratitude is an understatement. Like it's, it's amazing. And then, and then you, you know, then you use that as a, as a stepping stone, a leapfrog to then Mm -hmm. you know, get other sponsors as well and and i've learned so much about getting sponsorship <laughs> now like i knew nothing and now and now i could write a book on how who's best to approach why they're best to approach how to align narratives and how to uh how to really sort of press the right buttons with mm -hmm. the organizations um i think that might be my my second backup career is <laughs> get, get sponsorship it can be like a the yeah. best-selling author for yeah like how it, to get sponsorship it is a bit like i can make you rich like it's <laughs> sort of like i can get you sponsors but it, it's it, it's it there is a je ne sais quoi to it and and you know i've learned that uh sometimes your best friends the people closest to you aren't the best people to ask things for because they know too much <laughs> you know they see your they see your micros they see that sometimes you're late and sometimes you say the wrong thing or you're a bit of an idiot they still love you for it because they're your friends right but they will often go oh you know this is a bit risky because i know i know the him on his bad days right and then and so they'll often give you you know stuff maybe support you but they're not going to give you a hundred thousand quid right then i've really realized that there's this sort of sweet spot of people who aren't that close to you but they know you from afar and they they sort of have this sort of respect for you um they don't see your your foibles and sometimes you get out of bed mm -hmm. a bit late and all that kind of stuff all they see maybe they see this of wow harry did this or he did that or that team is doing this and i found that that's a really good band to tap into people who who know who you are respect you but don't know all your little fuck ups. <laughs> Excuse my French. And and uh, sees like the positive in you more yeah, than like it, the more normal. than yeah. more than the sort of the unadulterated negatives. Mm -hmm. And that that's a definite. So and then you've got the third category of they don't know you from Adam, um, and you're approaching them because you know you that's where you have to really think about the story you're telling, you know, aligning with their values, aligning mm -hmm. with their mission. Uh, and, you know, what are the charities that they're supporting? What are the things? So then, then that's more of a selling element. That's like you are literally pitching something. And the answer could be yes, probably one in a hundred. Um, uh, and so those those are sort of broadly the, the, the categories which you're tapping into. And each one requires a different approach. One is when you're talking to your friends and family, you know, it's very different. It's very light, but, you know, it's a hard sell. Then you've got finding that band around you of people that don't know you too much, but know you enough. <laughs> You know, that, that, that gets exhausted pretty quickly, actually. And then once you've exhausted all those channels, which happened, I'd say, in the first three months uh, of raising sponsorship, then you're only left with everything else, 
which is 10,000 companies and government organizations or what have you. And that's when the work really starts. That's, you know, that's a thousand emails, thousand conversations, trying to get meetings and whatsoever. That, is there any one of you in the team that's kind of responsible for, for that? Are you uh, kind of manning it in different every, ways? But? Everybody's doing that, but I, I am chief sponsorship officer, um, uh, <laughs> which I, which I'd rather not have the role because it is because you know the other thing as well is that, is that when you are successful even if it's someone you don't know you feel this real behold you feel beholden to them there's a sense of like guilt you have to deliver all these amazing things that you promised and there's so many things I can't control like oh, we're going to make do this amazing Amazon Prime documentary which we all going to get front and center on but then what happens if it's a really boring crossing and nothing that really happens and actually it's not a very good film and you know so uh, or you know. I said that uh, we would do X number of posts or you come out on the boat X number of times, but as it turns out, couldn't do that because of the weather or what have you. So yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I'm leveraged from a sort of, uh, mm -hmm. I owe people and I, and that, so that's a big pressure. Um, uh, but no, it's fine. And I always believe that when you're most stretched, most uh, nervous or the most, yeah, if you're stressed about something, that normally means you're doing something right. Um, you're 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 pushing exactly. boundaries yeah um so yeah i feel that a lot on the sponsorship side as i said not so much worried about the rowing yet ask me that question on the 11th <laughs> of june the day before we set off and then i might give you a slightly different answer <laughs> we might do like part two and part three exactly yeah 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 yeah. part three is on the water like yes i've killed my brother <laughs> and i'm, I'm happy i'm happy as anything i'm sending like a morse code <laughs> through the international space station mm. You're doing this for charity as well, yes. right? Yeah. Um, do you want to expound on that? Yeah, so two charities. You've got the Blue Marine Foundation, which is an ocean conservation charity, very close to home because uh, I mentioned James Blunt is my cousin. His wife, Sophia, is a trustee of the Blue Marine Foundation. Uh, we, Ollie and I, were born up, brought up on the water. We love the water, uh, living in Cyprus and Ghana and places like that. So it's doing something for the oceans. Um, we all watch Seaspiracy. Uh, the Blue Marine Foundation was one of the good ones. Um, and, and so that was a natural alignment there. Um, and do you know what, what's really great is the, the dolphin thing in Dubai, we were like, wow, all these dolphins. And we spoke to this guy called Khalifa, who's the head of all the P&O marinas. And we said, look, we saw these dolphins. He's like, yes, of course. Well, that's because Dubai, um, banned net fishing three years ago. Um, wow. uh, which is exactly what the Blue Marine Foundation is all about. It's about conserving the seas and banning net fishing meant that fish stocks came back inshore. And because fish stocks have come back inshore, dolphins now come and hunt here. So that's why you, the, 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 those pods are, are now visible in Dubai. So that's just like a, a daily showing of what ocean conservation actually means. Um, and then you've got this amazing thing that was signed uh, two weeks ago, which is a, um, a, the international community all agreed to conserve all of their uh, external waters which means that the Blue Marines Foundation's goal of conserving 30% of the oceans by 2030 is actually a reality. And they're already at 30%. And that's government lobbying, that's charities, the Blue Marine Foundation's work. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second charity is much closer to home and sort of spans back to my military career. Um, and in Afghanistan on the uh, 2nd of May, 2012, I was as part of the Brigade Reconnaissance Force uh, I was running a, a troop on a, on a raid uh, onto a target, onto a, a bomb factory, um, which we successfully hit at first light. Um, actually, there's a great article in the Daily Star 
and it's uh, um, uh, boys boys um, ruin Taliban Tea Party. And the great thing about that <laughs> that one was when we came onto the target, we were engaged by by these Afghan fighters, the Taliban fighters, and um, went on the target, found a m- massive weapons cache and bomb factory. But what was cool is there was this of mat. And the Afghan, uh, when they sit down in the morning, they have tea and what have you. And all the tea was still steaming, and there was a there was a warm teapot and the steam coming out of it. Um, and then with this massive weapons cache which we'd hit. Anyway, so that had been a very successful start to the day. On the extraction, um, one of my lead soldiers in a point section knelt on an IED, and he lost, uh, which you know, lost he lost both of his legs and catastrophically injured all over his body. Um, and he, so we went into the casualty evacuation uh, procedure, something I'd done 14 times already at that point over my two tours. So it wasn't new to me, and we were in a, a very well-honed, trained unit, which is great. Um, we had the helicopter there within 22 minutes, um, and uh, he was in a 40-day uh, coma. Um, he actually has the unofficial record for the British Army number of deaths. He died nine times in 40 days. Um, and then came to in Birmingham, um, thankfully surrounded by his mum and brother and, and a couple of other people that I knew, Alex Leisure and, and a guy called James Kyle. Um, life changed forever, obviously. Um, and uh, and his name is a guy called Kale Royce, MBE. He's got an MBE for services to veterans. And um, he uh, was supported by, first of all, Kale and Alex Ledger said to him, he said, look, don't worry, we're going to do something cool. Alex Ledger was all about the paragliding and the paramotoring and, and Kale subsequently flew the length of Britain in a paramotor and all sorts of paramotoring expeditions. And James Kyle had rowed the Indian Ocean. And James Kyle said, look, we're going to row an ocean together. This is going to be a world's first. And a year later, um, they rowed across the Atlantic Ocean as part of a half amputee crew. So two of them, two soldiers, ex-soldiers were amputees, two were fully able-bodied. And then he did it again the year after that as part of an all-amputee crew. And they were supported by the Invictus Games Foundation, which was set up by Prince Harry. Um, and the, basically, the Invictus Games Foundation is the Olympics for veterans. Um, and it started out with, it was a, basically a competition between Canada, US, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And now there's 27 participating countries, including Ukraine. The next uh, games is in Dusseldorf. Um, the first games was held in 2014, so it's really carrying through. And the community of injured veterans that it that it helps to give purpose to um, you know, teach new sporting skills and, and rehabilitation through sport is incredible. Um, and so, what's really nice is that we're rowing for Invictus, so we're raising money for Invictus. And Invictus helped Kale Royce with his expeditions and so many other veterans as well. And what was really nice is that. Kale, Prince Harry, and me were all in Afghanistan at the same time, and Prince Harry was was flying uh, uh, his Apache um, in support of my unit, our unit on the ground as well. So there's a really nice, and, and I didn't plan this by the way. <laughs> this all it all just sort of came together, um, and so uh, yeah, Invictus Games is a very is a uh, foundation is a is a very personal one for me, um, and annoyingly, so Kale was supposed to be on our crew. Um, as the most experienced rower, because he'd done two Atlantic crossings. And a, I wanted him because of, you know, our, our past. And by the way, before mm-hmm. Afghanistan, he'd been on the regimental skiing team and we'd known each other, like we were friends before we deployed. Um, and uh, so he had that he had that experience as well as our, our, our closeness and we'd worked together for a long time. 
he'd been on this other expedition or planning to do this kayaking expedition down the Amazon. And then COVID came along, ruined it. And then it was pushed to 2021. And then they changed it to kayaking the Northern Passage. This is like a 3,000 kilometer kayak up North America. And then, but that was going to happen in 21. And then it was pushed to 22. And then meanwhile, we're gearing towards 23. And then it was pushed into 2023. And he's like, Harry, I've been working on this thing for four, four years. Like, I can't, I've got to do that. So we lost him as a crew member. But what's great is that we're now going to be on the water at the same time on two completely different expeditions. Um, we can talk to each other with sat phone. Um, and yeah, I think it's a sort of almost a nicer story that we're both, he's cracking on doing what he does, amazing adventures. I'm, you know, inspired by him to, to be on the water, which I absolutely am. Um, and he, he was really injured as well. Like he, he, uh, I'll show you, you know, I'll show you pictures, but doesn't care an iota. Absolutely. Just whatever boss, you know, he just cracks on. You know, it's I don't feel I don't feel sorry for Roycey. Trust me, like he 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 has done just incredible things. He's a stronger man than anyone I've ever come across. Uh, he doesn't need sympathy. Trust me, um, he's a he's that's a incredible. Yeah, yeah, your story, like yeah. I can already like imagine it as a movie. Like I only see yeah. this. We yeah. only see this like the normal public in movies, but now mm. firsthand storytelling from you, mm. it's just it's just incredible. Mm. Yeah, no, it's good. So yeah, that's th there is a. I think people often. You know, you have to come up with a charity narrative, but the, the, these two and that one in particular is, is a really genuine motivation. And on a you personal know. level, aside from the amazing work that you're doing for the charities and you know, for, for being there for your team and doing this also for your, with your brother, I'm sure it's going to be incredibly special, but what are you hoping that it's going to bring to your life on a personal level? Um, so the other aspect in terms of motivation is, you know, my, my brother and I were really close growing up. We argue like cats and dogs, but we were really close. We have a lot in common. We love the water. We both you know, grew up water skiing and sailing and these, these amazing places in Ghana and Cyprus. And then life happens, right? And, you know, he moved to Dubai, actually. And, and, and well, I was in the army. You know, I was all over the world doing that kind of stuff, operations. And, and again, very selfish. You know, you just have everything else that doesn't matter in your immediate life just gets pushed aside. And I'm very cognizant of that now. And one, I think one of the people that got pushed aside, not deliberately, was my brother. And, and so, and he was going, you know, he was in, you know, he was growing up in his own way. He didn't join the army. He's the first bloke in our family ever not to join the army, which by the way, we're all incredibly proud of because what else would you do? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, uh, for years I would often be like, so what does that mean? Like, how do you do all these things? Because the army actually is a very easy existence. You just, you know, you're, you're fed, you're watered, you have accommodation, you just get beer money, right? That's And then every now and again, Every now and again, you've got to go to war, which is great. Well, but, not really. You just make it sound so easy. <laughs> no, but that's, I promise you, trust me, anyone who knows, knows what I'm saying okay. is true. Like, and yeah, okay. And then you have to disappear for months at a time and do, do, do the hard stuff or the, or the good stuff, depending on your perspective. So my brother and I had, had grown apart, um, but that didn't mean we'd grown. We didn't mean that we sort of didn't want to see each other. And so uh, part of the whole reason for doing this is like doing a great adventure with my brother which we'll be able to hang our hat on to the day we die, talk about our, you know, tell our children, et cetera. So to, in terms of takeaways, that's a big one for, for me. And, and I hope, hopefully him too, hopefully he agrees with me. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's a big one, you know. Please write a book about this whole thing. 
I'll write a pamphlet, maybe. <laughs> I can do. I probably. I could probably manage about four pages before my brain explodes. It's uh, incredible how it was. For anything else, there's an Amazon Prime episode. <laughs> exactly. That's why we had to get Paris involved because yeah. that's the only way we're documenting this. You've also had some incredible media support. Like I've read some, yeah. like really interesting articles and mm. seen that you've been doing a lot of school outreach as well and mm -hmm. kind of bringing so many people along on the journey with you yeah. can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in with yeah sure that uh, journey? so uh thanks to paris some good publicity newspapers that's all part of there's so many angles on that you know you have to you have to garner that 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 sort of interest because a you've got sponsors um b you want you want to use it as a platform to talk about your charities and and all of the about all those things and that's really really important um the school outreach is a little bit about that, but also from a personal perspective, um, I was years ago, someone said to me that it is everybody's responsibility to teach. Um, everybody mm -hmm. should teach for at least a small part of their life, maybe not be a teacher for 30 years. Like, 100%, yeah. you know, it's, our, it's our duty to make sure that, especially with the, you know, because, uh, and, and also there aren't many men teachers, by the way. So there's another element to that. But um, so the school outreach is a chance for, is that's me doing a little bit of that, you know, talking about uh, this adventure, hopefully inspiring a few of these kids to, to want to do things like this, um, to sort of enrich their lives and give them new skills, which help in life, generally speaking. Uh, I told you when I came in this morning, that's, that's difficult because <laughs> I've written this, we've got this amazing talk, which we love. And it's very image uh, heavy, uh, lots of videos and stuff, but uh, I've, done this in front of four-year-old kids and I've done this in front of 18-year-old kids and it's a very different presentation <laughs> um, and I've got quite some quite some hairy videos in there as well and just not relevant for four-year-olds so the one I did yesterday at Fairgreen was just like right here's the first slide does anyone know what that is everyone's putting on yes it's a boat yes it's a boat well done <laughs> and that's how the that's how the thing continues and then you've got the 18-year-olds who are just sort of in their nature, I think a little bit less engaged. Well, not eighteen-year-olds, like sixteen, seventeen-year-olds who are sort of less engaged. Uh, whether it's because they don't have the confidence, or whether it's not cool to ask questions, uh, but secretly, I know they're interested because I was that age once too, uh, as we all were. The best age, I love that sort of like nine through thirteen. Like so much enthusiasm, a little bit of silliness, like lots of. Lots They're of still stuff. in between, like yeah. adolescence exactly. and you know childhood. Yeah. They still think things that are uncool are cool, right? Yeah, like, you know, I, things that people would be like, oh, "Why would you do that? That sounds stupid." They're like, "Wow, that's amazing!" <laughs> and so there's so much energy, and then yeah, so it's a real joy to talk about it. And I don't just talk about oh, wow, we're rowing the Pacific and we're doing X, Y, and Z. I talk about the things that I've learned in the process about looking after yourself, because um, if you if you if you're if you have looked after yourself properly and your cup is full, it's much easier to help other people whose cup is less full, right? If everybody's cup is empty on the boat, then it's really hard to help everybody else on the boat. Absolutely. So that's talking about what that means is making sure you're fed and you're watered and you're looked after. And you're, you've, if you've looked after yourself properly, it's much easier than turn around to Paris and be like, Paris, look, can I make you a meal? I'll do your meal. Do, 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 do. You know? So that's, I think that's a useful lesson in a team dynamic at work, at home. The camaraderie, family, whatever, all that stuff. The yeah. teamwork. Yeah, exactly. The empathy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Really thinking about that, you know, uh, having the sort of real presence of mind to go, am I just grumpy? Is there something <laughs> actually wrong or am I just grumpy? Is, does, this, does this situation require me to 
uh, confront my brother or does it not? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that takes a little bit of practice and a bit of presence of mind. Um, and also, you know, when, you're, when you've been at sea for three weeks, you're a different human being. Uh, so that's a hard one to practice for, but certainly something to think about before you do it. When do you, when, when do you go? When do you start? So uh, we need to be in Monterey Bay on the 31st of May um, with our boat, which we sent from Dubai on Monday, which goes to Oakland in California via Singapore. And we're going to watch it for the next 74 days as it drifts and hopefully doesn't stop off at any other places. <laughs> but by the way, these boats do. They just like stop off. They just randomly divert to different places all the time. So you just pray that it's going to get there in time. And we're there on the 31st of May. We'll then be with the other 13 crews who are doing it at the same time as us. Atlantic campaigns who are helping uh, organize the race. And then we have sort of have two weeks of intense kit preparation briefings. Probably, um, yeah, it's kit preparation, basically. Getting mm -hmm. the boat ready, packing it, all that kind of stuff. And then on the 12th of June, we, we're, we're going. We're rowing, yeah. Um, two years in the making. That's and a, what was the app you said that you can download? Oh, it's called it's called Yellow Brick. Yellow Brick. Download Yellow Brick, um, and then obviously we're gonna we have a social media manager, so there'll be someone who'll be getting. So we get about thirty megabytes every few days, so we can send out some image images on 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 the journey. Thirty so megabytes. Thirty megabytes. Back to primitive experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, wow. But, it, but isn't that That's amazing though? Like yeah. even even ten years ago, that wasn't that would have been a joke. Like, and if you did have that, then you had a very special system and you spent huge amounts of money. This is just a couple of grand, which gives you basically access to satellites whenever you can get a connection to them. Um, so yeah, 30 megabytes every few days. That's a few pictures. All my WhatsApps coming in and coming out, you know, plus all the actual stuff we need, like, <laughs> like navigation advice, weather, weather routing, uh, you know, mapping of weather systems and all that kind of stuff. So after that's done, then we get 30 to 30 megabytes. Hours. You can spend yeah. that in like half yeah. a split of a second. Yeah. It's like 1999 again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's yeah. mental. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah, that's between the four of you. That's not each, obviously. That's <laughs> For me, like being outside, living the simple primitive existence makes my heart happy, but mm. I don't have a fear of missing out on the, <laughs> <laughs> the perils and, and the volatility of the ocean. Um, yeah. We wish you all the best. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for your time. This is an incredible adventure that mm. you could be told for years and years. And I, and I sincerely believe that these things mm. are the ones that's supposed to go viral. Hmm. And, and, and we hope that the message that you're sending out there is going to be received by many, I'm pretty sure. Hopefully. It's, it's going to be received yeah. by yeah. a lot of kids, a lot of people that you're going to inspire. You've just like inspired me when, <laughs> when Sophie told me, like, Harry's going to be on the podcast. And I was like, what's yeah. this story? I and know. Then, Harry, you're literally like, like a real life action hero, <laughs> honestly. Like, and, and to me right now, I mentioned you like, you were just like a fictional character because I only see this in like movies and comics. Yeah. And now that you're Hopefully here. I haven't disappointed. Yeah, this, is, this is insane. <laughs> I knew it. I knew when I was working and, with you at Falcon and you'd come and uh, you'd like go for a, you'd join our team's call in the morning and you'd be out on a run but you'd have like a backpack on of like <laughs> carrying loads of bricks and you'd be somewhere really <laughs> random we knew that you were kind of yeah. an adventurer at heart and I'm just so I can't wait to download this app and follow the whole yeah. journey yeah yeah cool but if there's any other way people can support like yeah well uh if if, if, if I may do a plug so we have our social media Please. which is Brothers and Oars our team is called Brothers and Oars by the way Brothers and Oars 
Um, oh, James Blunt named our boat, by the way. So, so I, I, <laughs> what's the name of the boat? Well, then? we haven't actually officially announced it yet, but I, I'll okay, give you a, right. so so I, I so James said, "Look, how can I support?" I said, "Look, why, can you just ask your fan base uh, what they would like to call the boat?" And then he put a picture of the team and what have you. And um, we got about two thousand responses on on sort of comments and what have you. Um, and it's looking like all beautiful. Play on oh. all beautiful. So all beautiful. Um, and so that's the unofficial name of the boat, which we're going to put on it. So we've got, so we've got Instagram and, and all that stuff. We have a LinkedIn page. We'll have the yellow brick app. Um, and hopefully you'll see us in the newspapers and all that stuff. And then we've got an Amazon prime thing coming up, uh, which all going well will be a next year kind of, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, lots that's of, it. Oh, and, and the charities, of course. So we also have the two, I mentioned, uh, Invictus and, and the blue Marine foundation. We have links, which, uh, I can share, which donate directly to them as well. So, so our main, uh, in terms of, we have a gala dinner in London uh, uh, at the Royal Hospital Chelsea in April, and we're doing a big auction, selling off a load of cool stuff, and that all that money is going to go to Blue Marine and, and Invictus. At that event, we've also got a chap called Johnny Mercer coming, who's the Minister for Veterans, which is cool. He's a cabinet minister. That's great. He's also a cool guy, doing amazing thing for, for vet, vets. Um, and we've got another, I'm not allowed to name everyone. I'm allowed to name those okay. two. All right. That's it. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Harry, it's been an honor. A pleasure. <laughs> cool. Thank Thanks, you guys. so much. We wish you all the best. And for sure, we're going to get in touch. Yeah. Brilliant. Vibe 30 is 100% organically handcrafted by Chris Dabu and Sophie Ryan. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and participate in Q&As on Spotify. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to 530 on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or where awesome podcasts are available. This has been a 530 production.